Let us pray together. Father, we thank You that Your Son came forth from the tomb, that You raised Jesus Christ from the dead, showing us that yes, full payment for our sins was made at the cross, but also through His vindication, vindicating us as His people, those who have put trust in Him. And Father, we thank You for this resurrection for it means a new beginning, a fresh start, a new creation has come into the world. Father, You have made us partakers of this new creation by faith in Jesus Christ and through the waters of baptism. May we live as Your faithful new creation people, putting the old to death that we might live in the new. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Easter Sunday celebrates the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. The resurrection means Jesus has defeated death. It means Jesus has inaugurated a, a new creation, a new world. Easter means the world is forever changed. The resurrection means that we Christians can look at the future in a whole new way. It means that we as Christians can face death, that final dark trial we all must pass through with confidence, with a deep and unshakable sense of victory because we know through Christ's resurrection, the last enemy has been vanquished. Christ has come forth from the tomb. I think perhaps the funniest verse in the whole Bible is that one we just read out of Matthew's Gospel where Pilate commands the guard to seal the tomb and make it as secure as possible. How laughable. As if any seal or guard could keep Jesus in the tomb once the Father raises Him from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead as well. I remember uh, a preacher I heard uh, when I was a kid growing up. And I don't think this is very good theology, but it still made a good point. Uh, he said, cemetery plots should be a lot cheaper for Christians because we're not looking to buy, just rent. Okay, It's funny, even if it's not great theology. There's going to come a day when the nails in your coffin won't be enough to hold you in. You will burst forth from the grave just as Jesus did, and you will live forever in the glorious new heavens and new earth. Death might be the last enemy, but it is not the last chapter. Resurrection means the story goes on and on forever. The resurrection means death has been turned upside down and inside out. Death couldn't hold Jesus, and so it does not hold you either. To be a Christian means you know that Jesus has beaten death to the punch. And so now you can look death squarely in the face and laugh because the devourer has been devoured. Death has died. The grim reaper has been cut down. But the resurrection not only changes our outlook on the future, it changes our outlook on the present as well. It changes the way we live right now. The resurrection means the world has a new king, a new Lord. The world now has a wise and gracious king, a humble and kind king in the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection means Jesus reigns right now. Jesus is reigning, going forth, conquering, and to conquer right now. Easter means the king has awakened and he's on the move. Easter means the king has returned and he's building his kingdom right now. And that is why the resurrection must be proclaimed. 
Because Christ is King. And when we proclaim His resurrection, we are proclaiming His kingship and His kingdom. We're calling on people to be loyal to Him. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, if Jesus has defeated death, then it follows from that that Jesus must be trusted. He can be trusted and He must be trusted. If Jesus has dealt with our greatest problem of all, the problem for which there had never before been a solution, the problem of death, then surely we know He can deal with every other problem we might face. See, the resurrection doesn't just secure us a glorious future. Christ is already raised, and so the glory has already been unleashed. The resurrection means that God's project of heavenizing earth, of making heaven and earth one, of turning earth into a colony of heaven has already begun. And if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, that means He has recruited you to continue carrying out this project, this resurrection project of spreading His kingdom far and wide. The book of Acts traces the spread of this Easter message in the early days of the church. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus commissions His disciples to preach this Gospel, the Gospel of Christ's resurrection, first in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to take it to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is really a travel log as well as a sermon log. It traces the travels of the apostles and it and it records their sermons for us. And it's very interesting. If you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, these are sermons by Christ's apostles, those who knew Him in His earthly ministry, who knew the risen Christ you will find that every single one of those sermons, every single one highlights the resurrection. Every single one of those sermons in the book of Acts pivots on the resurrection. The apostles see it as their calling to take this message of resurrection from city to city. And as they do so, they are spreading this good news of the reign of King Jesus. As they do this, they are planting colonies of the kingdom, colonies of heaven in these cities. They're transforming the culture of these cities. Bringing the culture of Easter, a culture of life and joy and grace and peace into the world more and more. And of course, the book of Acts is an unfinished story. We're here today because we see ourselves as part of that story, carrying it on, writing the next chapter with our lives, with the way we carry out this mission. In Acts 17 we have the message of the resurrection coming to the famous city of Athens. And that's what we read this morning, Acts 17, where Paul uh, goes to Athens and brings this message of the resurrection. And that's what we want to look at this morning. It's very interesting, uh, at the beginning of this passage uh, in Acts 17, it's really the resurrection that gets Paul into trouble. You see that in verse 18. It's the proclamation of the resurrection that disturbs the Athenians so deeply. But then at the end of our passage, the resurrection is really the punchline of Paul's sermon. It's as if he knows as soon as he talks, starts talking about the resurrection, a riot's going to break out. So he saves that for the very end of his sermon. Verse 31, you see that. He ends the sermon with the resurrection. And as is always the case, if you look at the conclusion of this passage, as is always the case when the Gospel is preached, there are some who said yes, There are some who said maybe, and there are some who said no. You see that in verses 32 to 34. Some believed, some wanted to hear more and contemplate it more, and some mocked in their rejection. But there's no doubt 
a colony of Christ's kingdom, a colony of heaven was established in the city of Athens in that day. True wisdom had finally come to the city of Athens. Let's look a little more at this situation. It's a very interesting passage. Paul ends up in Athens only because he is fleeing from persecution in Thessalonica and Berea. And so his missionary company, this band of missionaries that have been working together, split up. And Paul goes ahead uh, to Athens where he's just going to uh, wait for the other missionary companions to, uh, to join him. And as he's in the city of Athens, he begins to walk around the city. And of course, we know, because you can still see the ruins of it today, Athens was a city full of incredible and beautiful art and architecture. Certainly the most beautiful city of the ancient world. But Paul looks at the city not as a tourist, but rather as a missionary. And so what strikes him is not the beauty of it all, but the rampant idolatry. There are idols everywhere. In fact, one ancient observer said, it is easier to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. Statues of gods and temples to the gods filled the city. The statue to Athena was so great it could be seen from 40 miles away. In those days, the Parthenon was not a museum. It was an active, fully functioning temple bustling constantly with worshipers. All of this greatly distresses Paul, which is really important for us to see. It greatly distresses Paul, and it's important for us to know this because it tells us what Paul's motivation is for what he's going to do next. See, what what drives Paul? Paul is driven by a zeal to see God honored everywhere. Paul does his missionary work. He carries out the mission because he sees this idolatry going on. He sees other gods getting glory that should be given to Jesus. And so he wants to do something about it. In fact, it's very interesting, that word there that describes Paul being provoked by their idolatry in verse 16, that word for provoke is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for God's anger, for God being provoked when people turn to idols. See, God is a jealous God. And Paul is jealous for God. Paul's jealousy for God's honor is a good thing. It's reflective of God's own attitude, God's own desire to see people worship Him. So Paul begins reasoning in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He goes to a religious center and he goes to a cultural center. And he's preaching this gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And there are certain Epicureans and Stoics who hear him. The Epicureans and the Stoics, these were uh, two very popular philosophical schools in Athens uh, at the time, and we know quite a bit about them from writings that have survived. The Epicureans uh, were basically materialists. They believed that all is matter or all is atoms. They believed then that the uh, ultimate meaning of life is found in pleasure, uh, so they were hedonists. And then you have the Stoics who really were pantheists, who identified God and nature and who found the meaning of life in detachment from everything. In fact, we still refer to a kind of emotional detachment from the world, from life, as being Stoic. Because that's how the Stoic uh, philosophers sought to live. Well, when the Epicureans and the Stoics heard Paul, uh, they uh, accused him of proclaiming foreign gods, which is not the charge you want to have brought against you, in the city of Athens. This is, uh, interestingly, the same charge that was brought against Socrates a few centuries earlier, that he was a proclaimer of 
false gods. And of course, we know what happened with Socrates. He had to drink the hemlock. And so that tells you how seriously they took this threat uh, of Paul's preaching. But it's also really clear they have no clue what Paul is actually talking about. It's as if Paul is speaking a different language. They totally misunderstand him. They call him a babbler. And they've accused him of, of preaching foreign gods in the plural. Uh, the name for Jesus in the Greek, of course, is masculine. The word for resurrection in the Greek is feminine. And it seems that they understood Paul to be talking about two new gods, Jesus and perhaps his wife, resurrection. And it's like Jesus is saying, hey, there's this new power couple on the scene, Jesus and resurrection, that I want you to get to know. That seems to be how they understood his preaching. So what do they do? They take Paul to the Areopagus, which is both a place uh, known as Mars Hill, uh, but also a council of men. What do we know about the Areopagus? Uh, you can think of the Areopagus as a university and the Oprah Winfrey show and Congress all rolled into one. Okay, how's that for the Areopagus? Okay, a lot of things going on here. These are the intellectual elites of the city, like university professors. These are the leading uh, teachers and the, the leading uh, academics in the city. Uh, but they're also obsessed with novelty. They spend their time doing nothing but discussing every new thing, kind of like what you might see on the Oprah Winfrey show. These are the cultural shapers and trendsetters. They are the spiritual guides for their city, much the way that Oprah is for millions of Americans. That's the role they play in Athens. And they're also like Congress, because these are the people who set public policy and who make laws for the city, who even make judgments. So really you could even say they're like a court as well. So Paul is taken to the Areopagus. Paul getting to go to the Areopagus would be like getting invited to speak on a college campus and to be on the Oprah Winfrey show and to give testimony before Congress all at the same time, but with this very significant caveat. If they didn't like what you had to say, you could end up on death row or at least beaten to a pulp. So that's what's, what's at stake here for the Apostle Paul. But there's something else you need to know about the Areopagus. The record of its founding is given to us in the 5th century play by Aeschylus. And it's very interesting as Aeschylus records this uh, in his play. I shouldn't say records it, but just tells the story of this. When the god Apollo inaugurates the court of the Areopagus, he says this. This is what the god Apollo says at the founding of the Areopagus. When a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. That's it. Death is the end, at least bodily speaking. Apollo set the terms of debate for Mars Hill, for the Areopagus, and resurrection was ruled out from the very beginning. So the Areopagus was founded on this principle of denying any possibility of bodily resurrection. In fact, bodily resurrection was not only not believable for the ancient Greeks, it wasn't even desirable given the Greek mindset. And yet here, Paul is going to walk right into the council, right into the Areopagus, and he is going to herald the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the resurrection of all men. Plato, one of the great Athenian philosophers, perhaps the greatest, said the body is a prison house for the soul. And death is actually not an enemy, but salvation because it's our escape from all of this yucky matter from this inferior material world. 
And so here Paul's going to walk right into the center of Plato's hometown and he's going to turn that inside out by saying salvation is not escape from the body and escape from matter. No, resurrection is salvation. Plato and the Greeks have always denied resurrection and have seen salvation in diametrically opposite terms. Paul's going to walk in and say resurrection is salvation. This is the very shape true salvation takes. And of course here I think is really the sad irony of it all. Uh, the Areopagus was known for uh, its intellectual curiosity. Uh, the, those who gathered there were fascinated with novelty. They wanted to discuss every new idea. They wanted to discuss and debate new things all the time. But the one time they are really confronted with something that is genuinely new, what do they do? They hate it. They despise it. They ridicule the one and only really new thing they've ever heard. So Paul is on trial. We have to understand that here. Paul has been arrested and taken to court. And so the speech he makes here is not just your typical sermon. It's not just a sermon given to a bunch of inquiring seekers. It's not just evangelism. Maybe we want to use our contemporary Christian jargon. It's not just evangelism. It's apologetics. He's giving an apology, a defense. Uh, he knows his life could very well be on the line. Here he was supposed to be getting a break from having been persecuted, kind of on furlough. And yet here he finds himself right back in a dangerous situation. You've got to see that this sermon is his plea before the court. And as we look at his sermon, as it unfolds, we see that he uses a brilliant strategy. He begins, Men of Athens, I see you are very religious. Now, they're not going to know whether to take that as a compliment or a criticism. It says, for I was passing through your city, I considered the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, the one you worship without knowing, I will proclaim to you. It's as if Paul says to the Athenians, he says, look, you Athenians, you have not found what you're looking for. You're not satisfied with the gods you have. You know something's missing. You know there's another God out there who you don't know, who you feel like you ought to know. You've got an altar to prove it. And so for Paul, this is really his point of contact with them. It's this deep longing, this sense that something is missing. They have not found what they're looking for. And so Paul says, look, since you've admitted that you don't really know God, let me tell you about him. See, Paul is humble, but he's also bold. He's telling the city of Plato and Aristotle, you're ignorant in all of your philosophy, all of your wisdom. You're still in the dark. So let me lead you to the light. You've admitted you don't know God. Let me proclaim the true God to you. And that's what Paul does. He begins to uh, describe the true God for them. He proceeds to give them uh, basically a course uh, in who God is. Uh, he begins by identifying God as the Creator in verse 24. This unknown God, the true God, is the God who made the world and everything in it. And so against the Epicureans who believed in eternal matter, Paul says the world has a definite beginning when God created it. And against the Stoics who were pantheists, Paul says the Creator and His creation are distinct. And against the rest of the Greeks who would have seen matter as intrinsically evil, when Paul says it's the creation of God, a God who's obviously a good God, 
That means His creation must be good as well. Matter is not something that's icky and yucky. Matter is God's creation, God's good creation that reflects His design and His wisdom. And so Paul goes on, he points out then that because God is the Creator, the idea that God could be housed in a man-made building is simply ludicrous. This God, this unknown God Paul is proclaiming to them is not a God the Greeks can just add to their pantheon of gods. This is not a God who can be domesticated or controlled or manipulated or bribed in the ways that the Greeks try to do with their gods. You see that throughout Greek mythology. Paul goes on, this God's not only the creator of all life and all things, He's also the sustainer of all life and all things. Verse 25, He's not served by human hands as if He had needs. See, all the Greek gods were served by human, by human hands. They all had needs that humans were supposed to meet. But this God has no needs. In fact, we need Him. He's not dependent on us. We are dependent on Him. Paul says He gives all men life and breath. See, your next breath, the next beat of your heart is God's gift to you. He is sustaining your life moment by moment. Paul says this true God, the living God, is all-sufficient in Himself. He has no deficiencies. He has no lacks. He has no needs that we can meet. He's obviously very different from the Greek idols. Everything else depends upon this God and He depends upon nothing. You could put it this way, God did not create you so He could have you, but so you could have Him. It's not as though God has some void in His life that you can fill. God doesn't need you. Your existence is entirely a matter of His gift, His overflowing love. Paul then goes on to proclaim that this God is the ruler of the nations. Verses 26 and 27, you see this. Paul says that God made from one blood every nation of men. Now, one thing we need to understand about the ancient world is it was rife with racial tensions. The ancient world was a deeply racist place. Uh, And the Greeks were certainly racist themselves, especially the Athenians. They looked down on other people groups as subhuman barbarians. And this is how they justified things like slavery and other atrocities. But Paul here takes his shot at that. He takes his shot at this racism. He says, look, all people descended from one man. And so we all share the same humanity, the same blood. And so Paul is saying racial fragmentation, racial hostility, all forms of prejudice are violations of God's design for the human race, which is a design of oneness, unity, and diversity. What's even more important here, I think, is what Paul leaves unsaid but could have easily filled in, given the opportunity, and we know this because he fills it in in his other writings, Paul might have said something like this, given more opportunity to elaborate. Just as all people were originally one blood in one Adam, so through the blood of the new Adam, the fractured human race is being reunited. See, that's God's goal. A unified, united human race, a human race in which all the diversity comes together in oneness. And just as the human race began with one man, one blood, so through one new man and his blood shed at the cross, there's a new oneness that's being realized. 
See, whereas for the Greeks, different families and tribes all had their own gods. And of course, this guaranteed ongoing fragmentation and warfare. Paul is proclaiming one God, one God who rules over all peoples. And he has made them all from one man and he wants to remake them and reunite them in a new man. We all descend from the blood of Adam. We are all united in the blood of Christ who is the new Adam, the last Adam. God's desire is to sum the human race up in one man that the whole human race will function as one new man in Christ Jesus. That's God's design, and Paul's unfolding that here. Paul goes on to explain that this God is the Father of us all, and He wants us to find Him. He wants us to find His salvation. This is a good God, a loving God, a kind God who's continually offering Himself to us. We are His offspring, as one of the Greek poets has written. Paul takes this line from one of the Greek poets, we are God's offspring, and he actually uses it against them to build his case. He says, look, you acknowledge we are made for God and we're made in God's image, so we can't turn around and make God in our image, which is what you are doing when you construct idols made of gold and silver and stone. You're God's offspring. You know that. You acknowledge that. Your poets even say that. But then you turn around and make God into your own offspring by constructing idols. See, Paul's using their own words against them. He's trapping them. He's taking bits of truth they've acknowledged, but then twisted, and he's untwisting them, saying, look, you've got this insight here, but you're inconsistent with it. You say we're God's offspring, we're made in the image of God, and then you turn around and make God in our image. That can't be. That can't be right. That's not who God is. Paul cites another of their poets as well. In him we live and move and have our being. It's a Greek poet who used these words. And here Paul takes those words and he lifts them up out of the Greek worldview and he shows how actually they come to their full realization in the Christian worldview he's proclaiming. We live and move and have our being in this God, the true God. This God controls and oversees our lives. And so Paul's point is this. While yes, this God is the transcendent Lord ruling over His creation, He is also the imminent Lord not far from any one of us. Indeed, He's personally and actively involved in our lives. He is personally involved with each of us and He loves each of us. This is a God who has revealed Himself to us. He's not far from us. He's come near to us. God's not playing hide and seek. God has made Himself available to us. God is there and He has spoken. God is present with us. He is findable through His Word and through His people. In fact, I think it's interesting, while Paul here quotes a couple of pagan poets, his whole sermon really is taken straight out of the Old Testament prophets. He doesn't cite any of them explicitly because that would not have helped. Uh, given his context in the Areopagus. They would not have recognized the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's been pointed out that this whole sermon comes straight out of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets. In fact, many have pointed out that Paul's sermon here is basically a commentary on Isaiah 42. See, the Athenians thought that ultimately God was unknowable. That's what their altar indicated. Paul says, no, God has made Himself known. God's not far away out there. God has come near to you. He's not hard to find. And I'll tell you, this same God is right here with us today. This God is as near to you as your next breath. And He's waiting for you to find Him if you haven't already. 
He wants to be found. Finally, Paul proclaims that this God is the judge of the world. Paul may be on trial at this moment, but he says here there is a day coming when all of us, all people, will stand trial before this God. Paul says that God has overlooked man's ignorance in the past, but now, see, something decisive has happened. The turning point in history has arrived, but now this God commands all men everywhere to repent. Judgment has been postponed, but it's still coming. It's still on the calendar. And so what should you do? You should repent. Which in this context, repentance means turning from idols to serve the living God. Turning from idols to trust in the loyal God, in the true God and to be loyal to Him alone. That's what repentance means. It's a transfer of allegiance from these gods over here to this God who previously was unknown but now has been proclaimed to them. And why is this? Why should you repent? Well, again, it's because God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. See, the Greeks, with all their different philosophies and different worldviews, they basically all believe that history went round and round in circles. Round and round it goes, and where it stops, nobody knows. That was the Greek view of history. Paul says, no, history has a goal. It's linear. It's moving towards an end point. It's a story with a beginning middle, and an end. A happy ending for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, how will God judge the world? He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And how has this man been appointed? As the one through whom God will judge by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection appointed Jesus as the final judge of all. See, what Paul is saying here is the resurrection has really changed everything. The resurrection reveals history's goal. And it reveals history's judge. The Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection and judgment mean God will set everything right through the Lord Jesus Christ. The final judge of all is Jesus. In fact, the unknown God Paul wants the Athenians to know is Jesus. Who is the unknown God? Paul is proclaiming to them, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. God is present in Him to judge. God is present in Him to save. Because God is in Him, He overcame death. And all those who are loyal to Him will be given a share in His victory over death as well. And at the last day, He will judge in favor of all those who have trusted in Him and obeyed Him. You do not want to face that final judgment without assurance of His forgiveness. See, Jesus is the answer to their idolatry. He's going to topple all their gods. In Jesus, God is known. In Jesus, God has come near. In Jesus, death has been defeated so that in Jesus, history finds its goal and His His purpose. The true God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. Rather, Jesus, the true God, is forming us into His temple in which He will dwell. And in Him, salvation is found. We find in Him that salvation is not escaping the body at death as the Greeks thought, but getting the body back glorified, to dwell forever in a glorified and renewed creation surrounded by God's people and immersed in God's love forever and ever. See, in Him, 
in Jesus, the Athenians will find what they need to make sense out of life. In Him, they will find a God who gives coherence and significance to the world. In Him, they will find the unknown God has made Himself knowable. Now, I want to wrap this up this morning with a couple of, I guess what I would consider practical observations on this passage. Because I think Paul is a model for us in so many ways. First note, that when Paul went to Athens, he didn't get there and say, well, this is obviously an idolatrous culture, and so I'm just going to wait it out here, wait for my missionary friends to show up, and then we'll just go some other place. Some place that may be more receptive, more open to our Gospel message. Look at all these idols. They're never going to believe what I have to say. No, Paul does not withdraw. Paul does not retreat. In fact, Paul goes on the offensive. Paul is motivated by a desire to see God glorified. And so he takes the Gospel to these idolaters on their own turf. He goes to their marketplace, to their synagogues, to their cultural center. He knows the Athenians need what he has to offer. He knows by God's grace, he knows something they don't. And yet, when Paul goes to proclaim this Gospel, he speaks truth to them. And even though they have mocked him, even though they have threatened his life, even though Paul is revolted by their idolatry and their way of life, as he speaks to them, he is respectful. He is winsome. There's no hint of smugness or condescension on his part. He speaks the truth in love. He speaks truth to them, but with respect. And that's such a model for us. We live in a culture that has lost all sense of civility where it is impossible to have a respectful disagreement with someone, Paul shows us how to be courageous and civil at the same time. Paul here, I think, really gives us a clinic on how to take the Gospel into the public square so we can spread the culture of Easter, the, the culture of the Kingdom. Paul engaged Athens. He engaged its people and its philosophies. And he did so without compromise. He patiently worked through misunderstandings. They completely misunderstood him at the beginning of the passage when he's first preaching. By the end, he's actually attracted some believers, some who have believed his message and become his disciples. He carefully and considered their point of view. He even knew their writers so he could quote them and say, hey, look, you've actually got this right and let me show you where that really leads you. He showed them how the Gospel would actually fulfill their deepest longings. The deepest insights in Greek culture came to fulfillment and fruition in the Gospel. The things they got right were actually more right and better understood in light of the Gospel than apart from it. And he showed how the Gospel would fulfill the deepest aspirations of the Greek people. The Gospel, yes, in one sense was antithetical to Greek culture, but in another sense actually fulfilled it. Paul was not overly impressed or intimidated with the elites of Athens, but neither was he dismissive of them, just writing them off. And I think that is a model for us. We need to do what Paul did. Plug into the storylines that people are living in all around us and show how the Gospel can give them what they really want, what they really desire. Look, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus has been victorious over death. Jesus has been appointed as judge over all and we're on His side. And so we know nothing can happen to us 
that Jesus can't fix or make right in the end. Why should we ever be afraid of anything? We should live absolutely fearless lives. Our culture, yes, even here in the Bible Belt, our culture like Athens is teeming with idols. And when people go after idols, they're trying to scratch an itch, but it's not really working. We can scratch where people are itching. Our culture largely worships an unknown God. I mean, this is obvious. The people we mix in with every day, the people we interact with every day are people who are unfulfilled. People who are unsatisfied. People who know that their deepest aspirations and longings are not being met. People who still have not found what they're looking for. They know they want something else. They desire something more. Let's give it to them. The God that to them is unknown. Let's proclaim to them this unknown God so they will come to know Him. This God who has revealed Himself in the risen Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for raising Jesus from the dead. Amen.